0: What is poppin' hard with our listeners? I am Dan Favalli. Coming at you with a pre-podcast intro because we have Caitlyn Cooper at C2 underscore Cooper. As always, follow her on Twitter. From Indy Cornrows on the podcast. Uh, I did an intro with her, but while we were recording the podcast, Nate Bjorken got fired. And so while there was going to be other stuff attached to this podcast, and also this podcast was not going to be, re- be released on a random Wednesday afternoon, I decided it was best to just push it out, but also wanted to give you a note that we... We're act, um, acting in real time. She was kind enough to stay on after the news broke. So we discussed that, discuss a bunch about the Pacers future, which even if you're not a fan of the Pacers, uh, they are one of the most fascinating teams heading into the offseason now, not just because they have the coaching vacancy, they have the potential to be really good if if they're healthy. She is great, as always. Just wanted to throw you that note. Let's get to the podcast now, though, with Caitlin Cooper from Indie Cornrose. What is cracklacking, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my fantabulous co-host, Adam Frommel. I am, however, super excited, as always, to be joined by a fantabulous guest and friend of the Hardwood Knox podcast, Caitlin Cooper. She covers the Indiana Pacers for Indie Cornrows at SB Nation. Follow her on Twitter, if you do not already, at C2 underscore Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be back on here and talking about the Pacers again. It's been a minute.
0: Yeah, so I have a rule that I try not to bother um guests <laughs> who are not on the same payroll as me more than twice a year. And so as all this was unfurling with the Pacers over like the past few months towards the end of the season, I was like trying to time it right. I was like, you know, I'm always going to ask her to come on like before the season to sort of analyze everything that happened. But there was such like a a shitstorm happening in India. I had to resist not trying to get you to come on for an extra appearance because, again, I don't like you know having people on more than twice a year. I try to be respectful of their time in that way, and I can imagine that that was a pretty hectic closing kick for you.
1: Yeah, hectic's one way to put it. I mean, I think it's probably better that you have me on now because it seems like some of the fog has cleared. Like, I just... I do power rankings of parts of the NBA season that I enjoy covering and pretty much everything that's happened with the Pacers over like the last month is ranking in like the deep five hundreds, like rumors, sorting through rumors, locker room strife is all way down there. So.
0: Well, as usual, I've brought you on to talk about only Sabonis and Miles Turner trade packages. And so Oh,
1: great, great. So my you mean my following will be sliced in half by the time everybody <laughs> hears this podcast.
0: My first question though is just how many years did this pacer season shave off your life? Just with between the injuries, it being a truncated season, the coaching stuff with Nate Bjorkin, the the way that it seemed like, you know, you were pretty critical of their defense, but there's just so many moving parts in this Pacer season that even from someone watching afar, it felt absolutely absurd.
1: Right. I mean, I guess the best way I could put it is I've lost track of how many times I've posted my sad Jeff Teague picture. (laughs) I mean, it is, it's a lot of times, but I mean, in all honesty, it feels like in the last calendar year, even going back to last season that I've covered, I don't know how many Pacer teams. Cause I mean, you look at it, and when Victor was out with the injury, they were starting Jeremy Lamb. And then Victor comes back in kind of a reduced state. Then they go into the bubble. They don't have Sabonis, but bubble warren kind of happens. Then they come back to start this season, and it seems like, oh, the actual starting lineup's gonna be there. And, you know, we were so innocent back then. And then for four games later, TJ Warren's hurt, and that kind of reorients how you see the team. Then not long after that, they've traded Victor and then they just have no wings because they have Karis, but Karis can't play. And then you're adjusting to Karis being in the lineup. And then like the last month, it just seemed like nonstop upheaval. So from a reporting standpoint. So even for me, it's hard to wrap my head around how many different teams I've written and talked about.
0: Yeah, and I know part of this is because the world has imploded, but if you were to tell me that it was only two seasons ago that like Thad Young and Bogey were on this team, I wouldn't believe you because it feels like a lot longer in Pacers years.
1: Yeah, no, it definitely does. And, and some of that I even have to keep track of because just trying to match this defense against prior defense, especially as it pertains to Sabonis, it's like, well, they didn't actually have those guys last year, but it kind of seems like they did. <laughs> All of it's blending together.
0: I do know that you're not like the, that you don't enjoy rumors that much, but I have to ask you about the Nate Bjorken stuff. Mostly where do you land on it? Because there's, you know, there's smoke, there's fire, and then there's the raging inferno that this rumor mill became. And I don't think at the end of the season, Kevin Pritchard less than ringing endorsement. I think we could call it of, of Nate, just coupled with all the reporting. Do you land on one side of the fence or the other on what the Pacers should do with him? Or are you more like just hurry up and get to your resolution, whatever it is, so that you can move on as an organization?
1: Right. So I think for me, like, especially in the aftermath of that press conference, like even when the initial reporting came out, the fact that the Pacers didn't make any effort to come out and really squash that stuff with the exception of, you know, TJ Warren putting some tweets out about indicating that he didn't request a trade, but like, the main nuts and bolts of like the human management stuff, they didn't come out and deny any of that. And then in the press conference, the fact that they still haven't made a decision yet and also didn't deny that the human management and micromanaging existed, I feel kind of tells you everything you need to know to a certain extent. And because a lot of what's being reported from various outlets also seems like this isn't just a disgruntled player, at least that's not my read on it. I mean, you're hearing stuff about interactions with staff and assistant coaching and some of the challenges they had even building the assistant coaching staff and whether they're going to be, I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, after some of that reporting comes out, are you going to be able to find upgrades for an assistant coaching staff? Right. I mean, are, are, is that a job that people are going to want to take? I don't know. Maybe it is, but I mean, you look back to, I mean, I always refer to it as last summer, but last off season, and through reporting, there was indicators that in addition to modernizing the offense, they wanted a coach who was going to come in and be a modern communicator. And to hear like one quote in particular sticks out for me from Kevin Pritchard. He says, quote, I have a young coach who is really talented in X's and O's and he has to get better at human management. So... To hear a year later that that didn't happen that feels like a bit of a failure and then on the flip side like i write from more of the x's and o's perspective and they're talking about wanting to sit down and meet with him and thinking and hoping that he'll be self-reflective on things that he can get better at but was he self-reflective and what he was doing just from the x's and o's standpoint like you look at that playing game against the wizards i mean the pacers got wrecked by the wizards four times And while they did make some adjustments, I mean, I wrote about it. People can look at the article I wrote about their junk defenses and what they looked like. The third game, they played a lot of triangle two, box and one, and zone, and it didn't go well. But overall, the common thread uniting all of those games together was – we're still going over on every single screen and we will not duck under on Russell Westbrook and try to allow him to beat us as a shooter. So to come out and do that in the play in game again, like, yes, it mattered that you didn't have TJ Warren it mattered that Karis Levert was in health and safety protocols. And it mattered that miles Turner was out. That's three starters who all provide unique skill sets, but to come out with the exact same approach was just inexcusable on a certain front to me. I mean, I don't understand why you couldn't at least duck under a screen do i think that they were going to win that game do i did i expect them to did i think they were going to be successful in a first round playoff series against the sixers especially without the guys that i just mentioned no but that just shows a little bit of inflexibility there so at what point do you feel comfortable Exact expecting him to kind of be his exact opposite if you know what I mean like if you get into this setting again next year you're going to be happy that you sat with it I mean only they can really answer that because they're the ones having direct contact with him but I wasn't thrilled from the standpoint that um, he coached this team as the Raptors pretty much from day one and I wrote celebratory of many of the things that he incorporated offensively from Nick Nurse that I thought worked well for the Pacers but I don't really understand the approach of defensively copying and pasting that on a roster that it didn't really seem to fit on and that wore on as the season progressed. So I would land toward, it's probably time to make a change, but that makes me feel icky. Like I don't like (laughs) advocating for people to not have a job. And I suppose like maybe to give him the benefit of the doubt, if he had a full training camp and the roster was healthy and you really had time, like in his defense, this wasn't a great season to incorporate trying to play and shapeshift through this many different types of defense. You're not having practices. You had a shortened off for guys to get conditioned to play this sort of aggressive scheme. So I'm not sure that that worked in his favor, mm-hmm. but um, I think there's a lot of negatives working against him for sure.
0: On a quick aside there. I can't, I think, I can't remember if you wrote it or tweeted it, but you said something like a uh, they actually went under one of the screens on Russell Westbrook in one of the games against the wizards. And I audibly laughed when you tweeted or wrote that because I, it was clear how ridiculous she thought it was that they weren't doing things like that. I'd be the thing that seems to be working against him because from my perspective, I'd be like, okay, it's a first year coach and there is a different human element to um, you know, having to manage players as opposed to just dealing with X's and O's and, and other sort of stratagems. But when you see the reporting about like how little background work apparently went into, you know, you know, like clearing him, when you look at there might've been problems when he was with the Raptors, this isn't even just a Pacers specific situation. That's what really seems to be damning where from afar, I'd be like, it might just be time to move on at this point, because I don't know if this is an issue of a learning curve or just that he's forever going to clash with people because of his type of management style.
1: Right. And I mean, just to, show the other side i believe kevin pritchard mentioned in the postgame presser that they did talk to up to 15 i don't remember the exact number i mean it, it seemed like he was shooting that down a little bit and nick nurse did say something along the lines like he he answered that and went kind of full fake news and talked about clickbait and then said that what happened with the raptors was 100 false and obviously i'm not involved in any of those situations but the one thing that i do look at is Scott Agnes, if people want to read it, it's really good about the Pacers moving on from Dan Burke. He had a little bit of reporting in there that the Pacers had trouble building the assistant staff because of Nate Bjorker. And so that tends, that leads me to believe that there were some issues going on beforehand. Otherwise, why were you having issues building the assistant coaching staff? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying that Indiana is a glamor market necessarily, but there's only so many coaching jobs in the NBA. And if you were having trouble getting assistants to come here and work, that leads me to believe that there must have been some sort of red flags, whether it was in Phoenix or Toronto or elsewhere.
0: Uh, It's also funny because I had him when I did an early um, awards ladder, which is something I do at Bleach Report. He was my coach of the year through like the first month or month and a half of the season. And to see how quickly that deteriorated, that ladder did not age well um, with the coach of the year uh, award that I was writing about. And that was also the ladder where I got skewered by Miles Turner and Pacers Twitter in general. Um, so thank you for coming on this podcast and not holding that against me. But when you look at this actual roster and I mentioned this to you, um, in the the outline for this, I don't think we're there, but I think we're eventually going to get there on a national level anyway, for maybe people that didn't follow the team as much, or just national people in general, where they're going to think that because of the Pacers record, the stuff with Nate Bjorkman, they're going to say, Oh, this team isn't contenders in general, that there's going to be a push again from the outside to maybe make major changes. And I'm looking at it more as. I don't know what they don't really have a ton of flexibility anyway. But your what projected is your best five man lineup or your most important five man lineup with Levert, Brogdon, Warren, Turner, and Sabonis played exactly zero minutes together this season and never had a chance. I mean, just because Warren missed basically the entire year and so I I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the roster. Like, is do we chalk a lot of this up to okay, this was a weird season for everyone. Um, and the Pacers had the injuries. We haven't seen their best players play together for an extended run and then just sort of run it back or use someone that thinks there needs to be more of like a, a measurable material change to some of the personnel.
1: Right. So, I mean, I feel like I'm making a habit every time I'm on, I'm on a podcast, I tell people they're going to need a dinging sound for how many times I say, I don't know. But I feel like this was a very big I don't know season for the Pacers for the exact reason you just lined out. I literally have not seen this lineup play minutes together. Now, I can make some cross comparisons from what you said earlier in the season when Victor was, you know, moderately healthy and was actually shooting the ball pretty well for the Pacers right ahead before he got traded. That grouping of five there – they were an enjoyable team to watch like there was reason to think that nate bjorker was doing good things with the team the offense they had a lot more um weak side movement a lot more flow in terms of how they're in and better screening combination stuff that they were doing was just better so um if i can plug karis into that role and try to imagine it the one thing that i'll say about the nate bjorken system is it's very interchangeable um with the way they run some of their staggers connected to staggers like multiple people can play multiple roles so it's easier for me to imagine a fit with brogdon and lever and tj with how this offense is now on the flip side of that with what i was saying with the raptors i'm not sure that this starting five really meshes with playing at the pace they were toward the back end of the season when they only had one big most of the time because one or the other of Turner or Sabonis was injured, mm. as well as just what the defensive system is. I think there's a mismatch there and something would need to give. Like, either... Either you're not doing all of the shape shifting and you're not going to be this aggressive with ball pressure where you're constantly giving up odd man advantages and making people play into rotation, especially with the way that Sabonis gets used to play up top hedging on side pick and rolls and kind of in this help and fly role. And even they have him pressing up on bigs a lot of the time clear outside the three point line, even in non like dribble handoff situations. Like I think that there would need to either be a shift and somewhat of a relaxation in that scheme. Or they would need to find players that better fit playing a Raptors style, and that may mean moving one of the two bigs to get a more, you know, rangy, mobile four defender in Mm. some way, shape, or form, whichever big that is. But, I mean, I still think this can be a good team if it's a different coach obviously my opinion would change somewhat there I'd have to know what they were going to be doing but I think they could be competitive in a first round depending upon the matchup I don't think that they have much of a chance to be competitive against Brooklyn or Milwaukee maybe if they got better at how they would scheme against Joel Embiid because that's a matchup that Miles Turner and both Sabonis have had issues with I might see my way towards that being you know I'd lasting like six games like I I don't see them getting out of a series with either of those three teams as currently constructed I like all five players individually and I think that sometimes in the Turner and Sabonis debate if you were to ask me like oh which four fits with Miles and which four would fit with Sabonis the other player would have a lot of those characteristics it's just a matter of do these people all fit cohesively at the same time and I think overall there is a limited ceiling to it. So I think that they can be better than they were next year. It's just a matter of is that good enough?
0: There's also the element of, and I wouldn't, you know, remake the roster because of these two guys, but you have TJ McConnell and Doug McDermott entering free agency. Your I think they're gonna enter the offseason, like just there's a lot of stuff that goes into it, but depending on Um, What they do with some of their non-guarantees, they're going to be within $10 million of the tax. And so you're not going to fit both of those guys into that amount. And so I'm curious as to whether you expect both of them to be back, um, or if you only expect, or you could only have one of them back, who is more important to, to this team immediately and even longer term?
1: Right. So, I mean, Kevin Pritchard seemed to indicate that both of them have two feet in. Both of them would like to return. Um, I don't think you're going to be retaining both of them and remaining under the luxury tax, clearly. So I would have some questions for the Pacers. I mean, how do they feel about Aaron Holiday? What's the system going to be? Um, Are you going to do see yourselves as staggering Karis Levert and Malcolm Brogdon and having both of them man a lot of the point minutes Um, and also... If they do see themselves potentially moving a big, even if that doesn't happen in the off season, like which one of the two of them are they leaning towards? Because I think if I'm retaining Sabonis, I know that the general line of thought is that shooters are more replaceable, but I don't think that necessarily chemistry and the way that those two gel together is. And I don't think it's probably, can't be understated for Doug that like, yes, He's a movement shooter, but not everybody reads screens the way that he does and can cut the way that he does. He loves moving out of the left corner to his right. Sabonis is left-handed and loves running dribble handoffs on the left side of the floor, and that lets them fit really well together. And they just have a wavelength there. I mean, the number one assist combo on the Pacers was Sabonis to Doug McDermott. Their two-man game works well. Um, So if I was retaining Sabonis, I might lean that way a little bit. Um, If I'm leaning towards Miles Turner i might lean towards tj mcconnell especially if you're going to keep with nate bjorkran because tj mcconnell fits the system to a t on both ends of the floor and he's going to give you more playmaking and if you're not going to have sabonis you got to make up that playmaking some way but then i kind of weigh the lineups that you might have against each other and i question like okay if tj mcconnell's gone and you're playing you know aaron doug justin o'shea goga that's not a lot of playmaking and I don't know what the, the reads that Aaron was making this year that I would trust that very much. But on the flip side, if it's, you know TJ, Edmund Sumner, Justin O'Shea, Goga, if Edmund Sumner and O'Shea shooting doesn't hold, that's not a lot of shooting. So um, I think generally the thought is that backup point guards are harder to find and TJ. McConnell, I think, flat out one probably three or four games for the pacers that sounds crazy but if he wouldn't have played in like the game where he had the steel triple double the, against the Cavs, and i know how sad of a statement that is to make the pacers would not <laughs> have won that game so i think he's going to help you win more regular season games but then i think an important question is too which one of them would be more useful in the playoffs and right now That's a little bit tough to project because we didn't see a team making adjustments. They played two play-in games that were blowouts, and there wasn't necessarily a lot of exaggerated game planning there. But TJ did get played off the floor by game four of the series against the Heat because of some of the issues with off-ball spacing. And because they have Karis who can run a little bit more point now, it's reasonable to think that TJ might be playing off the ball in a playoff series. So there's just a lot to consider there. Um, my guess is that Doug's going to command more money. Like I could right. see him getting the full mid-level, which would then lead me to think that TJ McConnell is going to be the easier one to retain. But um, that's my long, twisty answer to your question.
0: This is an aside from the actual podcast, Caitlin, but Nate Bjorken was just fired.
1: Yeah, that's pretty big news.
0: Do you have any immediate thoughts as to um, their decision to to i guess let him go and obviously we're still i'm sure as we're talking about this they'll release a list of like prospective candidates but do you ultimately think that based off everything that happened not just off the court but you mentioned a bunch of stuff on the court this year um without knowing who the next head coach is is your guess that or even just knowing who's on the coaching market right now is your guess that they should be able to find a tangible upgrade
1: Right. So the Pacers have been connected to Mike D'Antoni. They were connected to him last year during the search. Um, there's also been some rumblings about Terry Stott since his exodus from Portland and Steve Clifford. Um, it depends. I don't really know even from the post game presser. Now that we know that Nate Bjorkman's out, which type of team that they exactly want to be. Um, they dialed up the pace toward the back end of the season, but then Kevin Pritchard in the post game presser talked about, they need to return to a hard hat defensive meta- mentality. So. You know, Steve Clifford does know how to coach defense, but you also, I don't think, want to lose some of the progress that you made on the offensive end of the floor and some of that innovation. And, and I don't think you clearly wouldn't if that was Mike D'Antoni. I do question overall if they'll be hesitant to go with another first-time hire, mm-hmm. and maybe that leads them to go with a more established name. I mean, they interviewed probably around... 20 there was a long long list of profiles that I wrote last year and I liked Dan Craig I thought he did some really good things from the heat and now assisting the Clippers but one name that I would like to see and I know that a lot of Pacer Twitter's behind that I'd like to see get a little bit more interest this go around Becky Hammond but I don't know what her situation is with the Spurs and and maybe the Celtics it seems like her name's circulating up there and that's a whole another piece of this that the Pacers are going to be in competition with both Boston and Portland for perhaps established coaches in the market. So,
0: And you seem to be spot on there because Woj also followed up uh, the news that the Pacers are expected to go with a more experienced and established head coach. So that point about them being reticent to go with a a first-timer um, is, is spot on, obviously. And then I think the name that came out per Bleacher Report's Jake Fisher right now is Terry Stotts has become increasingly linked to their position. And that would fit with what Woj said in, in terms of the experience. I don't know... Um, what how whether he would improve the team uh, you know b- by a, a noticeable degree on defense but if they're looking for someone who's experienced and who seem to really have the support of his players uh, I guess that would be a name that could even if Steve Clifford has always seemed like that guy and he comes with the cachet of I feel like every team he's coached has gotten better de- defensively
1: right and just I know that a lot of people that I've talked to out of Portland have talked about Terry Stotts is a culture setter as well, and, and clearly that's something that would need to be reset after the last year.
0: These questions I have for you now are less dependent on the coaching aspect. I appreciate you rolling with us through this breaking news, but what were your um, impressions of, of Karis LeVert through his 35-game sample with the Pacers? That was ultimately short to begin with, but then cut even shorter because he entered the, the league's health and safety protocols when it seemed like he was playing, for the most part, really well.
1: Right. So I don't think we'll have a full picture on Karis until probably next season. I know that he mentioned at times that given his diagnosis and then having to undergo surgery to treat cancer, that his conditioning wasn't quite where he wanted it to be. But as you say, like, especially in the month of May, um, he really turned it on and got to handle the ball more brogdon was out with the hamstring injury and and really got to develop that chemistry with sabonis because of that and that doesn't mean that i don't think he can play with brogdon it just gave him more opportunity more time of possession to kind of find his feel with sabonis as a role man because you could see that kind of early on when he first came that he would do a little bit of shot hunting and wasn't finding miles or sabonis on the pick and roll but then in the last over like the last 15 games he really did his assist rate went up his assist raw numbers went up and um, yeah, as you say, I mean, even his three-point shooting was up over 40 of the last several games, so a lot to like from Karras. I think one of the things that surprised me is, like, we knew what he could do with ball screens, but in the Nate Bjorkran system at least, he had more opportunities to come off of Iverson cuts and, and make some reads coming off of screens, and he's not Doug McDermott in the sense that he's going to fly off and, and shoot a catch-and-shoot three in motion, but mm-hmm. the way he reads those picks to get himself open and the reads he can make out of blitzes, that was stuff that I didn't fully know that he had that, that shined over the last couple of weeks. He just is really good at making reads and you can run really streamlined stuff and he can do a lot with it. So um, the defensive end's a little bit different story. You can't <laughs> do the same things. You can't do the same things with carrots that you could do with Victor. And that shows up fairly often. One possession that I would like to point out, they, they were getting eviscerated by the Hawks in Atlanta out of the pick and roll with Trey Young and Clint Capella. And they're running single side. So TJ McConnell was guarding Bogdan Bogdanovich and, he would naturally be the weak side tagger but you're gonna have to come off a shooter in order to do it and if that was victor they would be able to tag from the side where the wings filled even if it's the strong side because he's so good at at getting out and even xing up to the top um karis doesn't always have the recognition even to come over and tag let alone i don't think he quite has the recovery speed of victor to be able to do those types of things and some of his off-ball defense needs to um this isn't even a word, but I would call it a little bit spacey where he loses what he's supposed to be doing in those settings. So um, I think that that needs some fine tuning, but you know, hopefully they can get a coach in there that'll do that because that used to be something you could rely on with the old coaching staff and Dan Burke that they would get development out of wings. TJ Warren showed a lot of growth last year, even just over the first month of the season and really um, tightening the screws on some of the things that he was doing as a defender. So hopefully they can bring in a, some, a new guy who will be able to get a little bit more out of him in that sense.
0: Yeah. The, the off ball defensive stuff dates like back to basically the start of his career in Brooklyn. I don't know if that has like, he's played for including the Pacers, like 80 different teams over the course of his career, but I don't know if that has anything to do with it. Do you trust him though, as a primary initiator for the offense? Because when you, and I think you mentioned it already at this podcast, when you look at the the makeup of this roster, it kind of has to be like, it's him and Brogdon. And then, like you said, like you bring McConnell back, but it seems like they have to be when you're looking at traditional um, point of attack guys, where it's not so much going to be, yeah, you can run stuff through Sabonis, but those perimeter oriented players, do you trust him to be that person for the offense?
1: Yeah. I mean, he was doing it towards the back end of the season because Brogdon was out. I mean, when TJ McConnell was on the floor, TJ was doing a little bit more of it and his time of possession was down, but Karras is not, I mean, to put it lightly, his off-ball shooting numbers when he's in catch-and-shoot settings for his entire career usually settle in the low 30s. So it, to a certain extent, it just it feels like a more natural fit for Brogdon to give, be getting more spot opportunities and be doing stuff out of second-side attacks with his ability to dribble, catch, and shoot. He can just kind of do more things in that general regard. And But Brogdon has said since the time that he was in Milwaukee that he thinks his best position as point guard. And I think he definitely can play point. There seems to be a little bit of a general movement that he just needs to be a spot up guy, but I definitely think you can run offense through him. Um, He didn't get to run quite as much middle pick and roll this year as the year before. And I think that hurt the Pacers in certain settings because teams started ducking under because the Pacers literally only had, one guy who could get downhill for a couple months out of the season when TJ and Karis were both sidelined. So it made it easy to kind of bog down their offense by doing that. And when they weren't running stuff through the middle, it made it harder to get rescreens for him to be able to attack, but they both can do it. And I don't really ascribe to the theory of like, Oh, there's only one ball or, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think that you can have enough playmaking and that's something that Karis does over, have over Victor. I do think he's a better passer overall than Victor. I mean, even just what I mentioned before, just his ability to pass out of traps is better than what it was, than what Victor was going back to that series against Cleveland. So um, there's more passing and they're both generally willing passing. I think there's sometimes that Karis can do a little bit of shot hunting, but I think that they're both willing to share the basketball. So um, with the right coaching staff, I definitely think that, it can work whether it will and whether they're willing to make the sacrifices for it too is another question. But from a basketball sense, I think it can be a good fit.
0: And there's probably just a rush always to like, the, not every offense has to be like heliocentric As said part now is called it like playmaking by committee seems fine. And Karras got a ton of reps even before he was in Indiana with Brooklyn because of all those injuries and just inconsistent roster construction. And he really, I would say borderline shined as a passer there. And like you said, he will kind of shot hunt, especially from those in-between ranges, but I actually kind of like the idea. I like him better offensively for this team, I think, than Victor Oladipo, just based on the way that they're they're currently built. Even if you thought, Victor Oladipo's health issues aside, that his peak individually might just be higher as a player and probably because of the difference making he had the potential to do on the defensive end. But I feel like Karis Lavert is kind of the slightly more well-rounded offensive player.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that from what I said from the passing standpoint. And I think, you know, we didn't get many opportunities last year to see TJ Warren and Victor play together with the aside of the bubble and TJ Warren because Victor was kind of in the, the diluted state and TJ Warren had really established himself you didn't have to do a lot of fit finagling there because it was kind of revealing it on its own. I'll be interested to see how the two of them play off of each other. But I think just the fact that because Karis can do more as a facilitator where TJ Warren is definitely more score first and doesn't necessarily have that in his bag that I can see my way toward, even though there is a little bit of overlap in how their games are, especially Mm -hmm. with what you said and, and being in the in-between range, I think that it can be more feasible perhaps than even with Victor in that sense.
0: Well, you answered the second part of this question already for me, whether you like Levert's fit next to Warren better than Warren's next to Depot. Do you have any, you know, expectations for Warren next season? Like, is this something where we should expect there to be sort of a, a steeper grace period? Because he missed basically all year with that left foot injury. Um, j- just do you have any general expectations for what he can do for this roster, what to expect from the next season, or, you know, do they view him, should he still be treated as a core piece with he's extension eligible now and he also has 2022 for agency on the horizon and people still do remember the the bubble performance that he had. Um, He could be quite an expensive player to keep around long-term.
1: Right. So, I mean, the entire end of game press presser from kevin pritchard felt a lot of it like it was like a giant love letter to tj warren i mean they <laughs> talked a lot about it did i mean they talked a lot about how much they missed him um just as being their top scorer from a year ago the strides that he had made in the bubble and that he was a fourth quarter scorer and a fourth quarter defender and talked about him being able to guard other guys our other team's top guys and while i did quibble a little bit like they brought up how you know, at the end of the year we were having to have, you know, O'Shea or other people guard Giannis. I'm like, well, TJ didn't really guard Giannis last year either. He was I mean, this is gonna sound strange, but I do think that TJ might be their best on ball defender. There was times the season beforehand where like they would put him on possessions on Devin Booker. Um, they would put him possessions on Jamal Murray and Justin Holiday did some of that because um, Malcolm Brogdon's strengths really aren't point of attack and you can do that with TJ a little bit. Um, but I mean they aren't wrong and how much they did miss him from both standpoints. I mean, you're not going to go very far in the NBA when both of your starting wings are not in the rotation. And, they did get eviscerated by bigger wings and most, like a lot of games and not even just like elite ones, like, like Giannis. And I don't mean this with any disrespect, but like Harrison Barnes, OG Ananobi, Mikel Bridges, like all these guys, I think Mikkel Bridges had his highest scoring outing of the year against the Pacers because they just didn't really have anybody that could, they could check wings. And it's easier to manipulate that when he's in there, whether it's going to be that he's doing more stuff on ball or whether it's going to be Brogdon. But Um, It sounds like he has interest in sticking around. I mean, obviously there was the reporting that he had requested a trade. He shot that down and Kevin Pritchard did, but um, there was also subsequent reporting from Jay Michael at the Indianapolis Star that he likes being in a small market and, and has enjoyed his time in Indiana, which he seemed to reiterate during exit interviews. So I see him as a key piece, but as you say um, they can't. I don't know what the full amount they can offer him in an extension is right now before the season starts, but I think it's significantly less than what that he would be right. able to get in free agency. So it does make the money tight if they aren't going to make some other type of a trade.
0: Yeah, I think it's one hundred and twenty percent of what would be next season's salary, and I guess he's coming off of injury, so maybe he thinks of accepting that. But uh, if I were him, I'd probably gamble going into free agency at this point. And he, I guess he and um, Boyan Bogdanovic are probably like. Two of Dan Burke's like big wins when you look at his track yes. tri- record. And obviously, Burke is no longer with the team, but just you look at how much those guys improved defensively, where you can even kind of see it in Utah now. Like they're okay. Like they had Bogey on Kawhi for stretches in the Clippers in game one, and he did okay. Like he can play a physical brand of one on one defense. And then Warren, when you just look at how he played, and I know the stakes are different from Phoenix to Indiana, but like he improved exponentially on the defensive end during that first year with the Pacers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I pointed that out in an article, like, and I'm not trying to pretend that Luke Kennard is an elite player, but <laughs> he's somebody that's been a killer against the Pacers over lots of games. And they played Detroit like three times early in the season a year ago. And and TJ Warren struggled in that matchup. Like there were times where he was effectively setting like friendly fire screens. His footwork wasn't good and he was almost screening his own guy. Even when they were over in preseason in India, he had moments where I like I'm mentioning with Karis Levert, like where he would, he would lose track of people away from the ball or whether it was supposed to be him who was sinking on weak side rotations. And then they play, like, literally it was about a week or two weeks later, and he's defending Luke Kennard again. And, and not just whether Luke was making or missing shots, like his literal execution of what he was supposed to be doing on defense was like night and day. So, um yeah I mean definitely a kudos to Dan Burke for that one and for TJ I mean because I will say it's not universal Jeremy Lamb didn't make the same strides that TJ did he obviously put in the work to to get better as well but that's always been a concern like when I've had conversations about Karras is is will can we trust that this will actually get better and prior to you felt pretty good about it but TJ certainly made strides as a defender last year
0: I was about to say that this question is kind of loaded now that the Pacers don't have a head coach, but they were kind of in flux when we started recording this podcast anyway, so it's always going to be a loaded question. But when you look at sort of the uh, the three main pleasant surprises from this season for for Indy, um, from O'Shea Brissett, um, Edmund Sumner, and then baby Shaq himself, Keelan Martin, is there <laughs> one that intrigues you the most long-term or you think is most important to this team over the longer term?
1: Right, so Edmund and O'Shea were two reasons to like keep watching the Pacers while they dealt with a myriad of injuries towards the back half and had kind of all this drama swirling around them. Edmund really improved his, you watch him and it looks like his shooting mechanics have got better and he doesn't, he does more a lot of what he does originates in the corner, but he doesn't just go there and stand in the corner. He's a great slasher, but he made really good use of of cutting on penetration and also like on banana cuts. And O'Shea Brissett was just kind of a revelation. Like that's been a hole that the Pacers have had for a long time at the backup four spot. So I might lean in which one's more important as much as I love the Edmund Sumner experience and just watching like his raw speed in the open floor and his ability to Um, leak out and transition. I might lean towards Brissett just because they don't have as much depth at the four spot. And I think that Mm -hmm. there's a trickle down effect by having him that if you can play him minutes at backup four, then Justin isn't doing it anymore. And he's not getting worn down as the season goes because I think it was in April, late March, his three-point shooting really took a hit, and some of that just happens by shooters naturally, but he just looked worn down. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, he would, with the starting lineup at times, he would be guarding the other team's guard, like Colin Sexton or whoever it may be, and then he comes in with the bench, and he comes in and guards fours. And if O'Shea Brissett can do that, I think you can get him more to his natural position and hopefully get more out of everybody but you hope that O'Shea can continue shooting the three the way that he did because he does a lot as a weak side defender and the Pacers so often their weak side help just wouldn't be there. And he's a guy that can move sideline to sideline really well, shuffles his feet and could perhaps like contest a shot from three and still get back. And I mean, I've seen him get blocks as a weak side rim protector a few times this year. So he's an exciting one to watch continue to develop.
0: Sumner was really fun to watch. I, if he were like, two to four inches bigger I might be inclined to pick him out of this three but I also, I kind of feel like the answer was clearly um what you said with Brissette and also you know I love me some Justin Holiday I know you said he's overstretched in those <laughs> backup four minutes but one of the most malleable just glue guys in the NBA over the past few years um I think when you look at Kevin Pritchard's postseason comments it was sort of like a, he fell short of Neil O'Shea in Portland saying we need a coach who's gonna amplify this roster without it making any changes but he seemed to kind of like when you look at what Pritchard said, like he wasn't expecting any major changes to the Pacers roster I was kind of saying that, that being said, just given as we already talked about McConnell and McDermott entering free agency, maybe they do want to increase some flexibility to keep both of them. And I do agree with what you said, since I didn't get to this before that I would imagine Doug McDermott does get the full Mid-level, like his value as a movement shooter, obviously you mentioned, dude was shooting like 60-something percent on twos this year, shot over 52% on drives, and so I think he's going to intrigue a ton. But if they wanted to go that route of whether it's just a change or increasing flexibility, is there a player that you look at on this roster who would be most likely to be traded before next season?
1: i mean jeremy lamb after returning from injury i give him credit because he was shooting the three very well and from an offensive standpoint it was kind of miraculous in the sense that he just didn't look different like he was still gliding and getting to his spots as if he was never injured as i mentioned before his defense leaves quite a bit to be desired and in this system that got exaggerated more i mean he comes out at really awkward angles on closeouts and when you're constantly playing in scramble mode that gets amplified but they're all they were also trying to find really weird spots to get him minutes. Like he would be playing at the four with McConnell and McDermott and uh and Goga out there at times and and Aaron Holiday because they wanted to get those guys minutes or maybe swap out Aaron Holiday with Edmund Sumner and that's just that's not going to be a great fit for Jeremy and I feel like Edmund really established himself well towards the back end of the season where I don't know that I could justify telling Edmund that he's not going to be getting minutes anymore after what he did to earn the minutes that he got and it kind of just worked out because Jeremy was dealing with knee soreness so he wasn't in the lineup but I don't know how viable it would be to kind of try to offload his salary, but that's one move that I could see them making just to try to do some consolidation and make their rotation a little bit clearer, of course, depending upon which type of coach they hire. Cause there was spots I will say, like they played the third game against the Miami Heat in the way that the Heat were were blitzing and then kind of taking away the rim that was leaving the floater range open. And Jeremy's a guy who you feel good about putting in, in a lineup in that situation and still being able to score. He did good things against Toronto's three, two zone. The Pacers were really struggling to score against it in that game. And he came in and drew some fouls and was able to get into the soft spots. So, I mean, he does have value if he can be healthy. It's just that they have a lot of players at that particular position right now. And then, you know, I'm I'm with you, it seemed like they felt like they were gonna keep the starting five intact and see like now what a new coach can do with that grouping. And I'm not um, completely opposed to it, but I wouldn't say I'm committed to it either. And the one downside to this, which you could see late in the year is, what you would do with Sabonis at the five defensively is very different than what you would do with Miles defensively. So if they do think they're gonna make a move there, I think it would be beneficial to the new coach to know that because it was very hard for Sabonis to step into a funneling system late in the year when there's no way that you're going to change that mid season. But um, if they're going to be committed to it and they really want to see how it works, then that's one thing. But I guess my next answer would be a big, I won't say which one because I don't feel like getting yelled at by Twitter, but (laughs) that would be the most likely person that would get moved, especially if they just wanted to add more depth at the four spot in the starting lineup.
0: Um, Just two quick questions before I get you out of here. If if we're, I think we're both assuming, and I think everyone's assuming that the crux of this roster is going to remain in place. You were pretty critical of their defense at different points. Um, You were pretty critical of their defense during this podcast, actually. Uh, Do do they have the personnel when left alone at full strength to be much better? Uh, You know, they were dead last in the share of opponent attempts that came at the rim was that just a byproduct of poor transition defense? Is there something more sinister at play? Do you think that their, you know, did their commitment to zone at points really betray them? Um, so was it really more of a coaching thing or even a availability thing when you look at the personnel? Or do you think that there needs to be like there's still something missing from this roster that would prevent them from being a lot better defensively?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's kind of all of the above. I think that the one thing I keep hanging my hat on though, is that this was a top six defensive team last year with basically the same roster. I mean, TJ, again, that's a loss, but you are starting Jeremy Lamb in place of Victor last year and, and the old coaching staff still managed to put together a top six offense with, you know, Victor only playing a handful of games. So um and one other thing is like there wasn't a massive on off differential in the defensive numbers when Miles was on versus off last year
0: mm-hmm. because
1: they just managed to to scheme things better and and they kept Sabonis's radius closer to the basket than what you'll see this year. I mean, I pointed that out. Um I think from the non-system standpoint that they didn't always get consistent effort, but I think some of that comes from coaching too and holding guys accountable. But the system, like I said, was mismatched, I think with the roster. Um, and what you said with the zone, I think is very prescient because when you're trying to run that many different, I mean, the two, three, nor the box and one or the triangle and two ever seemed very settled. It didn't seem like they understood what their roles within that were supposed to be. And some of that might come from what you mentioned, like so many different lineups having been there, but um, like bump downs were non-existent. I don't know why they were trapping the wing in a 2-3 zone. And if they were going to trap the wing in a 2-3 zone in certain games, why you weren't in pass denial mode doing that. Those types of questions are definitely worth asking. Mm-hmm. And when you're rotating through that many different types of coverages, I think it can be hard. But what you bring up about the opponent rim, rim percentage or rim frequency, I think that's about like a three-pronged thing. Yes, their transition defense had a lot of issues towards the back end of the season for several technical reasons that I won't get into but they also like when you're ball pre- you're when you're applying that much ball pressure you're giving up an odd man advantage and then Miles Turner's having to commit and sell out for blocks or Sabonis is having to sell out for contests and made it harder for them to rebound and they don't have a lot of top rebounders so they also ranked very low in second chance points so that's points that they're getting around the basket whether you know sometimes those will be kickout threes but um those are some of the reasons. And then Sabonis just isn't gonna protect the basket as well in the minutes that he's out there than Miles is when you're doing so much funnel, 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 which is where right. I go back to the two bigs. If if you're gonna have Sabonis out there, you're gonna be, I would think my gut inclination is that you would be pushing more of that and using baseline sideline as more of a fifth and sixth man or sixth and seventh man, which is interesting because in the preseason they were they were icing more side pick and rolls and then once the regular season started, they were pretty much having him exclusively hedge those. So Um, When you're funneling stuff to him, he doesn't have the wingspan nor the timing to be doing what Miles does as a pick and roll defender. So that's certainly a contributing factor, but the opponent rim frequency was also like third in the league, even in the minutes when Miles was out there, they just don't have any rim deterrence. They don't keep people out of the paint. And some of it goes back to like what I just said, their stances, even when they come to the nail, they're just funneling people right down the lane. So my inclination is because of what the numbers were last year that you can get it better than what it was. But you've also subbed out a few people with Karis, I don't know what TJ Warren's going to look like coming back from a foot injury. So I'm somewhat hesitant I don't think that they have a silver bullet for how they're going to defend people like, you know, Giannis, Ben Simmons, Pascal Siakam I don't, I don't know that that's going to be answered internally and you're just going to have to find other ways to cover for that or somebody who can creatively come up with different coverages.
0: I would have been interested to see, and I know people probably look at the overall team defense too much rather than, you know, on offs here, but had miles Turner never had the, you know, missed a, a ton of time with the, but he have a big toe injury and he had an ankle injury at one point. Uh, didn't even fracture through this season. He dealt with a bunch of different stuff. They were in the 80th percentile of defensive efficiency when he was on the court and opponents were still like you said, getting to the rim a ton, but a testament to his rim protection that they still performed so well in those minutes, despite letting when I looked it up, it was 37.1% of their opponent shot attempts were coming at the rim with Turner on the court, which is a huge number. They were just so good at defending the rim with those minutes. So he had a fantastic defensive season and I'm sure his absences exacerbated the issues, but is it could it technically be like a blessing in disguise thing where it helped them realize like how far away they were defensively. If he's not on the court, because there are going to be you know, between in a normal season, if he stays there 15 to 20 minutes a game, or he's not necessarily on the court.
1: Right. I mean, I think that they need to evaluate how much that, and I don't mean this in a derogatory sense to miles at all, for all the reasons you just said, like he's a tremendous pick and roll defender, great rim protector. He can, he's adaptable in the way that you can use him in the pick and roll more so than Sabonis. But I think that you need to evaluate how much you're overburdening him to be doing those things and how much you're willing to let people, even though how well he depresses that field goal percentage, if that's completely viable and that if that's gonna be your scheme, then I don't think you're gonna be completely reorienting it in the minutes when he isn't out there, so. Um, yeah, I mean, they did mention how much they missed miles as a rim protector during the end of season press conference. And this is the second time they've done this because when they drafted Goga and it was still the Dan Burke system, they're like, well, one of the most imp- Goga can block shots. And one of the most important things when we set our defense is a shot blocker. And I think Kevin Pritchard said something along the lines in the end of season presser like, um, two of the most important things in the NBA is having a rim protector and a wing defender and TJ Warren and miles were out. And I'm sure some of that was like trying to provide reason for why they had such the fall off that they did without completely Mm -hmm. sandbagging Bjorken or anybody else, but, (laughs) um, cause you also need to be able to hire a new coach. So you don't really want to completely back blackball the coach that's leaving, but, um, Yeah. I mean, I I think that miles would have made the defensive situation towards the end of the season better, but I can also look at games like against the wizards where they still gave up 74 paint points in that game, even in the one that he played and they weren't keeping Russell Westbrook out of the paint. And that's where I go back to, you know, maybe don't go overboard with overs. And I do think that they need to make some scheme adjustments, whether they have him or not. And they had issues toward the last several weeks. I mean, the last game he played in against the Hawks, they were getting ripped up by Clint Capella on the roll. And that's little bit of my pet peeve like that's not him that's a team thing you need to be able to you're not going to defend that two on two there's no way you're defending trey young two on two in those situations so definitely some refining that they need to do and evaluation
0: my final question and i feel like i've jumped around a ton because of woge here but is there anything else i didn't ask you and i'm there's a ton of things i didn't ask you but is there anything else that i didn't ask you that you want to talk about or something that you think needs to be mentioned about this team heading into the offseason? Are you sad that I didn't ask you more about Malcolm Brogdon, Sabonis, or Turner Trade Packages? Anything at all?
1: No, not sad at all about the fake <laughs> trades. And I, I feel like I need to apologize now. I mean, the listeners aren't going to know this, but I apologize for the amount of times that my internet went out during this, that my mic didn't work, and that my phone has been constantly pinging about Nate Bjorken being fired. And I also apologize for answers that now don't reflect that Nate Bjorken was fired.
0: <laughs> hey, look, I just appreciate you staying on. I, I saw the news break while you were talking about, I think it was the defense at one point. I can't remember what question it was. And I, was, I felt bad that you were just on this podcast while um everything is blowing up in Pacers land again we had talked about before the podcast too how kind of quiet it had been by design (laughs) because the Pacers told everybody to take a beat and they decided that that beat was over
1: (laughs) exactly this is this is my life though Dan typically this is when stuff happens is when I actually have stuff scheduled with other people that's when the news breaks I'm pretty sure that this exact same thing happened when Nate McMillan was fired last year was it with you no. I might have been on a podcast with you and that happened. I don't oh, know. I, I was on one with somebody and then I, I was, after I got off, I was like, oh, major news has dropped. But
0: uh, it was definitely not me. I would have, I would never invite you on the podcast again if you had been, had been forced to sit through it for two head coaching changes.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, back to back Nates are out. So the the job is to find new, new Nate that will guide the Pacers to a championship.
0: Um. But was there anything else about this team that you thought needed to be covered before I, mercifully release you
1: no i I think that you covered it all really well i'm impressed by your questions
0: oh you're too kind uh this team is fascinating heading into the offseason not just because nate yorkin was already fired but when you look on paper they have one of the deep i don't it's not a perfectly balanced roster but it's one of the deepest rosters in terms of actually good nba players on it and they have the potential to go from sort of this implosive faction this year to in the thick of the, you know, a top four spot in the East next year. And so their offseason is going to be fascinating. I hope you will let me bother you again. Once all that hoopla sort of unfolds before we get into the, the next regular season. But if you guys are not following Caitlin and you're listening to this podcast, I have no idea what you're doing with your lives. Follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper spelled exactly as it sounds. Fantastic writer for Indy cornrows at SB nation. Um, just knows so much about the NBA. Great follow on Twitter. If you're looking for great playoff analysis right now as well, Caitlin, thank you as always so much for coming on and giving me and being so generous, excuse me, with your time.
1: Thanks again for inviting me. I really appreciate it.